You're listening to a podcast from the University of Warwick. This series was produced as part of the conference All Together Now, British Theatre After Multiculturalism. The conference was organised in collaboration with the British Theatre Consortium. In this episode, we hear the question and answer session from the panel discussion, Mistaken Identity. Let me bring, let me bring the audience in, because um, uh, I think this is just fascinating. I'm not quite sure to what extent we're on the point here, but I'm not sure I'm worried about that, but uh, nevertheless, there's somebody there in the middle I'm seeing. Hiya. Thanks, Jackie. The guy in the middle with the... Please, that would be great. Um, Hardy Schwerk. Um I just wanted to pick up on the, one of the key themes that have come out for me, particularly in relation to audience development, which is what I do. Um, and it's about the sort of fear of take, uh, the, the financial fear of um, programming work, which may not bring in the, the relevant audiences or new audiences mm -hmm. or however, however you want to see that. Um, so therefore, working towards work that is probably populist or current, for example, terrorism, Bollywood, arranged marriages, forced marriages, etc. I mean, I want to give you two examples of that as to how it works, because I've, I've worked in both areas. But it's just, um, it, it's a myth, um, because it's all down to audience development, strategic audience development. If you take your, because the, the usually the barrier or the challenge is not the work itself, it's the venue or the space. It's the lack of relationship between the community or communities and that space itself. And it's the lack of historical connection between that venue or that space with its local communities. And that's why through audience development or strategic audience development where you take the work out into the community, outreach work, call it whatever you want to, and broker a relationship between the communities and the venues, then you can pretty much put anything on uh, in, in them spaces. Um, I used to write in the 90s. I put on work which had nothing to do with being Asian or Indian, Sikh or Indian, and it was about totally other things, craziness. But we sold out shows because we did the work on the ground. And I've worked on big, big productions like Bombay Dreams and Wuthering Heights and Rafter Rafter, and we've brought in audiences, mainly because we've done the work. They wouldn't just come in through the door of the Victoria um, Theatre in the West End or the National Theatre. We put in months and months of work, of strategic work, of going out into the communities yeah. and engaging the communities with the venues, not necessarily the work. I've, there's been popular um, Asian work that's taken place in the West End. It hasn't sold well. Um, and I can't think of the example that came to my head that came on straight after Bombay Dreams, because everybody went on this sort of Indian tip of, that work, let's put something else on. But there was no audience development strategy attached to it, so it bombed after two months. It, it so was it a bad musical as well. I don't <laughs> well it was I, I, the that was the one. Yeah. It was, um, <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't really matter. It's really about making informed decisions, working with the right people. And to be honest, it's all about bringing new voices in th um, into these spaces. And that's, that's really important to the lifeline, the bloodline of the theatre sector. And just to finish on this, Audiences aren't only bums on seats, they're actually writers and directors, they're potential writers and directors and managers of these venues. So we shouldn't always view audiences as bums on seats. It's actually through the process of audience development or audiences coming in through these spaces that become familiar spaces for these people that they start to make choices about actually having a, yeah. a career in these environments. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's very interesting to hear you, to hear you speak like that. I have I have a sort of sinking feeling, though, that it might not be quite so easy to do that work very soon. Can I just make <laughs> um, a couple this of... Is, this is, uh, you know, I keep feeling that we need to come back to, um, you know, I, I remember what it was like under Thatcher. Okay, yeah. can, <laughs> does anybody have questions for the questions for the panel they'd like to um, ask here? Um, Fanny, if you don't mind, I'm going to take somebody else first. Would that be okay? 
Yeah. I just want to come. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Just one minute. Lynette wants to make a point. No, I just, I just wanted to come come back on on kind of that just generally. And um, one is relates to, to what the some, someone was saying earlier around kind of um, middle class and then what we might call the the new audiences. Certainly in terms of uh, black theatre, my experience at the moment is that when you're starting to talk about new audiences, you're starting to talk that you're primarily saying young black people who wouldn't usually go to the theatre, and I think there's a kind of issue, issue there. Um, especially when, we, when we, I recognise that, that primarily the, the writers that are still writing black theatre are kind of older, 30s, 40s, that kind of age group. Um, but yet the audiences that we're trying to encourage to come are the kind of young audience. The second thing is that I think we're, we're inheriting a theatre tradition a heritage, a British, British theatre tradition that is that has been geared around the kinds of theatre spaces that we have primarily. Okay, so someone earlier spoke about architecture, and I'm saying all this to get to the point of saying that what I think is quite clever about, say, what Debbie's doing or what Kwame is is doing to some extent is that they are well aware of the traditions and the the architecture and the, the heritage, the theatre heritage that that we're, they're inheriting but using those traditions and those spaces to then articulate um, something that's current that can encourage the, the new audiences that we're seeking. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, there's somebody, yes. Yeah, um, I wanted to touch on something that Ashmeet uh, mentioned, which is um, the lack of any significant uh, black uh, theatre directors. And it seems like through the course of the day that it feels as if uh, black actors have made some progress, and black writers uh, have made some progress. Mm -hmm. But you know, where are where are the major role models? Where are the major black theatre directors? And uh, my question is, what would what would <laughs> 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 people, people yeah. not think as the guy behind well, you just what, put his hand up? What would the what would the panel you know oh, what would the panel recommend in terms of what progress they would like to see, and how would they like to see that happen? Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. thank you. I'd like to, to comment on that. First of all, the, the way in which role models are perceived is very, very diverse in its own way. Um, there are people who know about the black directors and the work they do. The, if, you, if you think in relation to the so-called mainstream, the big houses, um, the big houses are ignorant by choice. I mean, literally by choice. They know there are, there are black directors, male and female, of some experience, living and working in the UK, and by choice, they ignore them. And that's a racist choice. I'm sorry, there's no other way of putting it. Up until this month, it has been stated there are no black directors who could, black, who could direct a play such as the Shoyinka's uh, revival of um, uh, Death of the King's, Court, King's Horseman at the Royal, at the, at the, uh, Royal National Theatre. But what I want to say about role models is more important. There are role models that exist within different communities and who are very well known within those communities, both nationally and internationally. When I go to the United States, people know about my work. When I go to, when I go to certain other kinds of venues and do other kinds of um, forum-based events, people know about my work. But those people who choose not to know about my work and the work of my contemporaries are those people who choose to be ignorant. So there is, a bigger, there is also a bigger issue, oh, I do also know, that how do we judge what significant is? How do we judge what quality is? How do we judge what a life work is? Mm. Thank you. I, I'm not saying that, that, that they don't exist. I'm saying that they're not given the choice, cha chances to direct in those, those venues. Yes. They exist. Yeah, yes. My yeah. question was, yeah. I guess, exactly totally, what totally get them to get those chances? 
is, mm. is anybody able to sort of bring us back to the, this business about whether uh, identity politics in itself was a problem? Do you see what I mean? The limits of it, the political limits of it. I w because I do want us to try and face this question, if we can. Maybe that nobody wants to. <laughs> he wants to talk. And then somebody down here. The problem I have here is who's defining the conversation. I mean, identity politics was essential for black people, and I suppose for some Asian people. It was life-threatening not to talk about who we were. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't just an intellectual exercise. It was an exercise of life and death, of mental health. So, I mean, in that sense, we had to then take those, some of those stories to the stage. We had to take some of those stories to the film, and, to film and to, to literature. We had to do that. Now, where, now what, what that conversation has in relation to the wider conversations, I mean, the conversations that are happening in the wide mainstream press or on television or else, that we have no control of, I don't know. But in relation to, was it worth it? I think, actually, let's put it in context. It was critical, not just worth it. Thank okay. you. I think the thing is really about, about recognising how that debate is moving on. So yes. it's kind of what I was, was trying to talk about when I, when I was uh, yes. do it, do it, talking, doing the sort of longer, longer talk, and this kind of sense that, as Toph was saying there, at one stage, identity politics was about dealing with diaspora, dealing with culture clash, dealing with, with something that seemed visibly to be identity politics. Uh, now, we're having plays that seem to be about human stories, okay, whether that's urban yes. violence or whatever it is, and therefore, people are, are su suggesting, myself included, I'm trying to work out what I think, that we have moved beyond identity politics. I would actually suggest that it's a, a different kind of, of way of yes. dealing with identity, black identity, okay. I guess. I think within identity politics, I mean, somebody, I don't know why sure is being picked on, but, um, <laughs> but talk about being sure. about life, character, human destiny. That's what I'm writing about. Mm. You know, that's what I'm writing about. And, and my identity politics are wrapped up in that. Okay. But first and foremost, that's what I'm writing about. It's the same as, as anybody else. It's yeah. human stories. Mm. My stories happen to be black. Yeah. It's just not I, as um, explicit Just now, hang on a minute. I've got Janelle, but De Debbie wanted to speak earlier, I think. As, a, as an observer, I, I would say that identity politics was extremely powerful and had enormous potential as a set of stepping stones. Mm. But that what, you know, and, and that's been the same for women writers and directors, black writers, directors, disabled theatre, etc., etc. But then what's happened is that, is that the mainstream has gone, oh, you look so sweet standing on that lovely stepping stone. Stay right there while I take a photograph of you. And that stepping stone is no longer a stepping stone. It's actually a quite an isolated island and that a lot of people have, have been left and marooned there and is still expected to work from it as a as an isolated island and no longer as a stepping stone but you know that there, there are people who have the absolute talent and vision to step right over the rest of the stepping stones on onto the main stage and you know I can think of somebody who should have directed um, Death of a Horseman at the National Theatre and and that there are plenty of artists who are well able to do... In I'll invoke the spirit of Kwame for you here, Julie. Um, <laughs> he said in a, an article in The Observer about a year ago that cultural specificity is now the lens through which the universal is observed. Mm. But it can't be if all of the major artists are marooned on that island that should have been a stepping stone. You know, and it just takes another big political shove, really, and challenge, and people saying, why? 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 Okay. 
Thank you. Let me bring Janelle in because she want, wanted to speak, and then we've got somebody here and there was somebody well, there. Just, yeah, you first. I'll do Janelle first. I yeah. just want to say a couple of words about what I think has happened to the phrase identity politics. I mean, I think we have to see it rhetorically. And it's been um, captured and, uh, and dismissed and abused by the people who don't want to see identity politics move forward. It's so yesterday. It's so old-fashioned. Excuse me, that's a rhetorical strategy, and it usually comes from the right wing. Mm. And it's the same sort of thing with PC. You get exactly the same that's, argument. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to be PC. That's because they've managed now to make thinking about a strategy for what is the politically appropriate thing to do or say a bad thing. Yes. And I do not want to see us as a, as a body or a group dismissing identity politics in those terms because it reinforces that negative way of thinking about it. Now, it's also true, and you, the panel here, has, has developed this today, that identity has become quite complex and multi-layered, and there's a whole new kind of analysis of what constitutes identity mm. that we need to do from the kind of movement-based identity politics that, that some of us started with, whether it was feminism or the black community or whatever. But that's not quite the same thing. And I just think the, the politics of rhetoric needs to be in this conversation. Mm. Okay. okay, there's a, a, a man in front of you there. If he could speak and then somebody over here next. Oh, thank you very much. Um, my name's Madney Eunice and I'm the artistic director of Freedom Studios, a relatively new Arts Council of England RFO. Um, just going back to the original question that was posed for this conference, um, and we sort of look at the right wing in the last week that have, um, that have found their way into Europe, but I do think there are, within our own government, when we look at the government's uh, policies on terrorism and their four Ps, the ideas of the pursue, prevent, protect, etc. policies, and when we look underneath those policies, we see uh, the language of fascism, in my opinion. Uh, uh, the language that uh, marginalizes people um, and, in my opinion, makes them guilty for something they have not done. But that being said, I think even for this government, the idea of multiculturalism may have reached a sell-by date, for this government at least. Um, and today, I've, I was really eager to kind of hear what the counteroffer was, because ideas are, can sometimes last a lifetime and sometimes are time-limited to moments in history. And if multiculturalism has been time-limited, what is next? Because from what I hear today, though hugely respectful of all the panelists that have spoken, um, I'm not seeing a counter-offer that I'm truly believing in. And actually, that, for me, is important. And just a final uh, note, um, there's a really significant, I think, active movement of artists that are currently um, coming together in the shape of sustained theatre. And this is an Arts Council of England initiative, and it's sustainedtheatre.org.uk. It was a fascinating paper that was written by Professor um, Gus John and Dr. Samina Zahir, looking at identity, aesthetics, and ethnicity. And it was entitled Speaking to Power. I encourage everyone to read it here. Thank you very much. Madani, is, is that right? Yes, it is. Because yeah, you're a writer too, aren't you? Is that right? Is That's that, correct. Um, correct. I've got you. And so do you, are you aware of an, a notion of defining a counteroffer in your own work, do you think? I think it is not, uh, I think it is a necessity. I don't yeah. think it is a choice. I don't yes. think, um, should we or shouldn't we? 
I think that uh, that stares us in the face, that actually multiculturalism, though enabling and relevant at a point in history, in many ways has come to restrain the potential of black artists, of black people okay. within this country. Okay, thank you. Thanks for developing that. It's really interesting. Yes. Um, the Hi, uh, Dawn Reed here. Um, it was really just picking back up on what Sarah was saying down there about Antofer and the idea about directors being one of them. Um, is that stepping stone. It's, it's, you're right, it's time to move from that stepping stone, but it's about the choices. It's about who's making those choices. It's about who's telling us what work and our quality of work. It's about who are those... Because uh, it's very really funny when Dave talked about, you know, uh, the actor who was 30 years ago a servant and now he can get there and be a king. Fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, that's a little step. Because I've, I feel like I've been having these conversations again and again, and again. And the one thing that hasn't moved on, and it's exactly what Barbara said earlier, is about the power. And it's about who's controlling this. Who really gives everybody the access of their work. And until we look at that, until we make that push, until we actually ask all these people around who are running our buildings, who are running those companies, who have those decisions, we won't be really moving on. And I have to say, I think, and please someone tell me if I'm wrong, I am a black woman associate director attached to a venue. I don't think there's many more. Anyone else can tell me? I think I am. In the country, in the UK. Uh, please tell me if I'm wrong. I'm attached to a venue. I'm sure, there are, I'm sure I am. I'm sure I'm being completely wrong here. But there ain't that many. Karina, of course, has just got barking. My, my thing. Just got barking, though, sir. <laughs> just got barking. It's Cheryl Martin. You know? So, <laughs> what does that mean? Really, what does that mean? Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, yes, yeah, so somebody just here. Sorry, panel, I'm, I'm no, shutting fine, you up because I'm letting fantastic. the audience speak. Is that right? <laughs> somebody uh, over there and then over there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tyrone Hoggins, uh, independent Hello, Tyrone. theatre artist. Hello, Julie. Nice <laughs> <see> you again. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, I think some of the mistake is actually um, it's, the, it's the worrying about the identity. Uh, I think yeah. actually the identity thing will take care of itself. I think we now need to move on to issues of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. I think where the, where, mm -hmm. the big prob where the big logjam is, is that the time allocated to theatre space, theatre performance time, is, has hit this logjam that is kind of cluttered up with a kind of aesthetic mm -hmm. work that actually just needs to be edged off the stage. <laughs> I mean, and, and it isn't to do with sort of uh, universal change. It's, it's to say that maybe there's a particular type of aesthetic that inhabits 80% of stage time. Why don't you bring that down to maybe 70%, 60% just as an experiment? Because one of the problems is that, uh, I don't know, the work, the, the arena in which I write or I direct, I play uh, as a theatre practitioner is, is kind of caught up with the generation of the new. We're, we're all you know, we're rapidly generating a lot of material, and some of it is good, some of it is bad, whatever. Uh, I think the project that uh, Kwame is just uh, engaged with through the National Theatre of collecting, uh, you know, an array of uh, plays produced by black theatre pr practitioners, which to some extent probably inhabit the same kind of theatrical aesthetic as this 80% I'm talking about. You know, some mm. of the older pieces of work are using a form of theatre that has a particular lyric style. 
and that uh, you know the modern writers are coming up with this whole dynamic, energetic kind of uh, I mean the, you know the screen stuff, the screens and projector stuff. And I mean coming from a world I suppose beginning at the beginning of the 80s, working in experimental and visual theatre, and sort of seeing the the amount of time it took some of those ideas to make their way onto the stages of the national and the larger mm. theatres, mm. it feels like we we. We're now caught in another bit of a logjam, and it's to do yeah. with the type of work that we're putting on our stage. It's the it's the fact that uh, the the National Theatre's hundred greatest plays of the twentieth century, whatever whatever what it is, one for each uh, decade of the century, or something, um, year of the century was. Uh, I think there were three, if I remember, three to five black plays. The, of the, I think it might be in five, three of the uh, uh, black plays were American. Mm. I think there might have been one Asian play in that. And when you looked at what, the, what was being held up as the acolyte of the theatrical form that we are living with, it felt to me like the majority of it came from the, uh, the first 60 years of the theatre practice. And I think, uh, you, know, there you know, in terms of developing the type of work that maybe could uh, rightfully take its place alongside some of that lyric theatre, I think uh, there just needs to be a bit more time given. And I think that point of our production is it. It's actually the idea of getting into <coughs> development hell, which I've seen so many you know, fellow practitioners, you know, th th I think it, it, it's the same cycle that inhabits the, the, you know, the Arts Council initiative practice. And, and I agree with you as well that, that, that the thing about that is that it generates some good stuff along the way. Mm -hmm. it's, sort of, uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's trying to pull all of these things into a, uh, a look at the work. You know, we spend a lot of time in theatre talking about all the structures around it mm. and very little time talking mm. about the work. When you began, Tyrone, the, 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 the I'm, I'm interested in whether you think that some of the some of this development is quite individual or individualistic, because um, because you know um, a lot of the experiment that you were involved in uh, is still I don't I haven't seen recent work of yours, but you know like the work I know of yours um, uh, expresses and is uh, was flexible partly because it was done in collectively and you know sort of yeah. in units that could move quickly. Yes. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, Whereas this is, this, is, this is sort of like an adoptive strategy, mm -hmm, you know? It's mm -hmm. like and in a way, we, we probably have to face it. We'll fa be facing it by default because it's, a part it it's born out of resources. Uh, when you yeah. are working with fewer re resources, the inventiveness of your theatre form yes. yeah. uh, has to adapt to that fact. If you're working in a lyric form, then actually the, the amount of resources to really realise a, a proper lyric form of theatre uh, apart from the work that I think, uh, um, I mean, uh, Barry uh, Rutter and Northern Broadside do, which actually has the, the same kind of ethos of using uh, the, you know, not extensive resources to generate yeah. a kind of performance and a kind of engagement with the audience. I think th that actually that whole need to just fragment the, 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 you know, clip a little bit off the, the time and the resources we're generating to each individual production across the theatres and maybe just fragment it up a bit more, but get more stuff on the stage. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, the gentleman over there at the back. From there. Um, <coughs> yeah, my name's Michael Eaton. I'm a dramatist, but not usually for the theatre, but 
I hope you'll indulge me. Um, I wanted to go back to this point about identity. It seems to me that for all of us, but possibly for writers and actors more than most, identity is something that's fluid and shifting and transforming and conflictual in us. And, and too often it seems to me that it's forces outside ourselves that are trying to fix our identities, to try and shove the pin in the butterfly and keep us where we are, no, mat no matter where we come from. And when I listen to the two writers on the panel this afternoon, I see personify what it is that we writers do. We get outside of our own identities. When I hear Ashmead <laughs> talking that he wants to write a play set in the 1830s about, you're not writing about your own personal experience, you're not writing about your own autobiography, but you're writing from your own self. When Ali is writing about a gay man, it's not autobiographical, but it's about your, so our identity, in a sense to me, will be produced if we can get away from the identity that society forces upon us. Mm -hmm. Okay, lovely. Um, I, we've got about three minutes left, I think, and Steve would like to speak, Fran would like to speak, she didn't have a chance, and I do want to bring the panel back in. So could I ask you to be beautifully concise, please, Steve? I'll do my best. Thank um, you. Steve Walters, <laughs> playwright. Um, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Um, and I was interested in the idea, I think Lynette was mentioning about, you know, is the burden of multiculturalism solely uh, falling on the shoulder of non-white writers? And that, that really fascinates me, actually, mm -hmm. because it strikes me that the most, for me, one of the most important pieces of drama of the last 12 months was Hunger by Steve McQueen, which I thought was a complete masterpiece. Uh, and there were no black characters in it. Um, it was written by an Irish playwright. Um, you know, and, and so sort of just really interested in the way in which perhaps precisely this kind of new generation of writers are creating spaces which actually completely deny the premises of identity as oppression. Mm. Uh, identity politics obviously is a response to that, but, but you know the next stage is obviously to completely question identity, which mm. is always, it seems to be, oppressive. Mm. Fran. <coughs> I just wanted to add something from my sphere of work about agendas and identity. In Northern, I went to Northern Ireland a few weeks ago and met a practitioner there who's been working in one of the communities local to Belfast. Um, in Belfast and in Northern Ireland, the funding bodies from the EU and other places insist that theatre workshops are used to deal with the divisions in the community. And frequently the, the elements of the community don't wish to deal with those divisions. Mm. There's a kind of elephant in the room which I think they would rather leave fast asleep while they calm and settle. They're building walls between the communities. There is a certain position going on there. So he went in and was asked to do work between the communities because the funding body wanted it. He fought like a demon and eventually did a production of Playboy of the Western World. He insisted on doing that, but he could see that it was not, the point was not to go on about divisions. He not only had to fight the funders about that, but the community as well, because he did it with them which meant that they felt they couldn't do it. And there was a long battle to get this play on with people leaving and coming back. He had to be in it himself. And in the end, it was put on in the community. It was an enormous success. It was nothing to do with what the funders wanted. What I'm trying to say is that I think that there is an over-determining policy structure which is completely rigid. 
in which, for example, around multiculturalism, where the communities in the East End, if you tried to move between communities through organizations, you couldn't at a certain stage because the organizations were embattled around different groups of asylum seekers and so on and so forth. And I think that what's happening now is that people themselves, writers and people, are actually breaking these boundaries and trying to work through into another form and a new form. And I can see this, this sort of, the, the situation in Northern Ireland seems to me to reflect that. Okay, thank you, Fran. Um, I, I just, oh, sorry, Ashmead is saying somebody else wants to speak. Quick question. Okay. Hi, I'm Roberta Wilkinson. I'm 14, and I think I kind of have a different, a bit of a future perspective on this issue because I kind of see like the multiculturalism in theatre for what it'll be like when me and my peers have like an influence on it, and I think that really how to combat the problem of you know in the future having people just having, say, a lot of white people in power um, over the big, like, theatres and organisations, a way to really combat that is in um, bringing lots of theatre to schools mm. in, in like, um, and making sure it's got lots of cultural diversity so that we can really learn about that things. because I don't see a lot of it in my school. And I think that's really important that we learn about that so that, because that's just the way I see it, but... Thank you. Um, it, 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 I'd just like briefly to ask you to sum yeah. up. If you I'll just, uh, yeah, I'll just, just come in. Um, each of you want to first. Yes, right. please, Lynn. <laughs> yeah, for, for 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 years now, as, as I was researching kind of black women's theatre, um, and uh, at the time I was quite. This is the changed your mind bit that you referred to earlier. Right. I was quite um, disillusioned by the the fact of some playwrights um, saying we, we just want to be known as playwrights and just to be known for telling stories that are just stories that happen to be about people and that r race and, and or gender should not be kind of determining factors in the way that we're understanding their work mm. necessarily. Um, and 10 years ago, if you'd have asked me about that, I would have said, that's not good. Surely we should be talking about identity and identity politics and foregrounding that, that in, our, in our work. But the, the shift that I would like to recognise is, is, in terms of the, some of the playwrights, is that they are just telling stories, but through those stories, we can start to learn about kind of our culture and our society. Um, two more quick points. Um, when I first got the title for this panel and I saw Mistaken Identities, my heart did sink. <laughs> I, was, I kind of thought, why, why, why is it that the black people are invited to, to talk about identity politics? Um, and then following on from this morning and kind of tying into this kind of thing around telling stories, I guess what we need to start recognising is that black stories or stories of people of colour, let's call it that, are also part of our national narrative. Because I was also disheartened to see that the national narratives were kind of white men and the identity politics is the people of colour and I think that that's mm. uh, something that we need to kind of start troubling and start looking looking at. Thank you. Oh, yeah. um, Sorry. No, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did agree with the, I'm going to agree with the last point because when I saw a national narrative come on I thought 
a national narrative. Surely there's national narratives. Mm. And I was a bit disheartened, A, to see an all-male panel, mm. more or less. And B, there was nobody on there who was ethnic, but then, you know, then we're going to go tokenism. But um, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, personally, I think I agree with the young lady. They had a teacher. I think we need to go into more schools, maybe more independent companies need to come in. Uh, the way I was inspired to write by theatre wasn't by the national theatre or any mainstream theatre. It was when a small company came in and um, I remember it clearly. I was, I was actually your age, I was 14, and I watched Kafka's Metamorphosis and I thought, how mm. great is this? Here's this guy who wants to be a spider. That's exactly what I want to be. You know, <laughs> I don't want to be Asian, I want to be a spider. And I thought, that's great. I think we need to engage with the youth and I think we need to engage with adults as well. I think mm. there's too much emphasis. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on engaging with the youth, which is fine. But if you want to bring my mother to the theatre or my auntie to the theatre, we need to start thinking about maybe older sections of society and bringing theatre to them. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. Well done. N Natalie? Um, I want to make a couple of points. Um, I think, uh, going back to the audience, um, I think obviously things will develop and there is a flux and a fluidity. <laughs> but as our audiences become third, second, third mm -hmm. generation, the, the, the writers will be from my point of view as theatre centre, our writers will be responding to as second, third generation writers as well. Um, and I think that's important. That's going to change the nature of the plays that we produce. And when I say produce, I mean produce, developed into production. Um, the other point I want to make, is, which is, you talked of earlier, just mentioned about the importance of the work that's going into schools and the engagement of young people. I think there's also a job to be done by the mainstream to give credence to that and sort of not, not to leave it on the stepping stone as before you go and get the proper job over at the National or the Royal Court, but actually that this is a very important uh, part of the whole sort of cultural continuum and the engagement both with audiences and with practitioners. Um, I very consciously made a decision to work for Theatre Centre, to move out of the mainstream because I do see it as a hugely important part um, of the work of, of, uh, of the arts and I think it's most, the most exciting interface um, of the arts um, and I think there's um, more work to be done in terms of raising that profile and giving it the respect not only in the resources but also from the wider industry that, um, that it, it requires and demands. Thank you. Ashmi. Yeah, just in terms of, of what Mark Lawson was talking about earlier and, and, and the, the kind of cultural racism of of Radio 4, I think it applies to theatre. Um, theatre is still referring to default, referring to default means kind of commissioning white people. If I had a bundle of money to commission people, I'd commission my friends as well. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, it, it's our language. Um, no more sick notes from Matron in terms of theatre. And trust us, we know our stories. Really, you have to trust us as white theatre that we know our stories and we can tell our stories. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to say well said to the panel, and I hope you'd agree with me. This conference was supported by the School of Theatre Performance and Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, Warwick Arts Centre, the Humanities Research Centre at the University of Warwick, and the Department of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway.